From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. An important element of learning, reading, and watching is the accessibility of a given piece of material. As we look back on the history of our world, most of it is not easily accessible in the modern age. Considering historical newspapers, letters, and other archived documents, how accessible can these documents really be to today's diverse world of researchers, educators, and readers? World-renowned economist, Dr. Melissa Dell of Harvard University, has developed an open source package that can detect objects, analyze layouts, and more to uncover massive amounts of data trapped within various documents. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dell. Great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, So you received a Translational Innovator Pilot Grant Award to develop methods for detecting complex text layouts and create a database of newspaper content from American communities. This is using advances in deep learning, but can we take a step back? What is deep learning? So essentially deep learning is a a series of methods to take raw information that's in a form that's not um, computable and to turn it into representations, you know, that you can use to do whatever you want to do downstream. Um, So in this case, we have image files of newspapers, um, which comes in the form of image data. Um, And we use deep learning uh, to, first of all, to recognize the structures. Um, So that would be like headlines, um, articles, captions, photographs. Um, And then we further use deep learning to extract the text. um, So to do optimal character recognition. Um, and And then, you know, the end result of that is a text database. You could take that one step further and create additional measures um, you know, from that, um, that can be used to do analyses and stuff. But we're essentially taking this kind of form of information that it's in its raw form, you can't really do much with it. I mean, it's a, it's an image. Um, you can read what the image says, but that's not something that is machine readable, right? And we're turning it into text, structured text. The tool you've developed to detect complex document layouts is called Layout Parser. Can you talk about Layout Parser and what makes it unique? Um, Yeah, so it's a Python package for recognizing uh, document layouts. And um, by which I mean, you know, in the case of newspapers, the layouts are um, like headlines, articles, captions, images, ads, headers, like what are the coordinates that determine where those different objects are located on a page. Um, But it could be all sorts of different things. It could be different types of information in a table. You know, it could be table headers, table columns. Um, Essentially what your layout objects are is going to to depend on what your document is. Um, And so the way that layout parser works is first of all, if you have a document that looks like one of the models that is included with it, I think we have maybe about seven different models, um, then you can just use that off the shelf with 
four lines of Python code. It will run the layout analysis on your document. It will send individual layout regions to OCR, and then you can uh, visualize and export the results. Um, again, with just a few lines of Python code. Of course, you know, you might have documents that don't look like things that we've processed because there's a vast array of documents. In that case, it's not going to be that satisfactory to use just without any further modification one of the models we have because that model hasn't yet learned what your documents look like. And so what you need to do is to give the model some more labeled examples um, from your set of documents. Um, that means images where you have drawn on the boxes that show the content regions. So in order to make that more efficient, included with layout parsers, a software interface um, for creating those labels that we've you know, built tools into to try to help it to be as efficient as possible to do that, because obviously that can be a very tedious process. And so with layout parser comes this tool to be able to draw the boxes onto your images um, so that you can tell the model what you want the model to recognize um, and then you can also use layout parser to train um, your own deep learning model with those data you've annotated, potentially using one of the models that comes with it as a starting point, which is going to be better than starting from scratch. Um, and then, you know, once you've trained your custom model, then you can again use it to send to OCR to visualize the results and to export the results kind of to a desired format that you can then take and do whatever you want with them. Um, and so that's, um, uh, that's the basic idea. Um, you know, you can get the code on GitHub. As I mentioned, it's all open source. So maybe you want to add something to it or, you know, build it into something else. Um, you can do that um, or just download it and use it off the shelf. You know, if you're, um, I think like if you're a researcher and you kind of want to do something similar to us, you may just want to kind of download it and use it as is. Um, you know, if it you're, we've been contacted by some companies that are developing commercial applications and stuff. In that case, you might want to say like, oh, well, we can build part of this into our existing code base. With so many newspapers out there that aren't digitized, how do you decide where to start? We essentially like use uh, content from like an off copyright um, database of newspapers. And we started with front pages and editorial pages. There's something like over half a billion pages in the entire database, which is more <laughs> data than we could put that would cost, you know, probably like a million dollars just to process it alone. It's more data than we can deal with. But I mean, half of that's ads. So I think by looking at what's on the front page and um, what's on the editorial page, you see what people thought was important and you see kind of what their opinions on important issues are. We are essentially limited by having things that are off copyright, um, but that is the vast majority of papers prior to 1978 which is how far forward we go because there's a change in copyright law in 1978 that makes everything automatically copywritten. And then that leads to an orphan works problem where by, you know, automatically without having to register a newspaper's copyright, that newspaper went out of business in 1985. You know, there's no way to access that sort of copyright. But before 1978, like the papers that we don't have are in the vein of like, you know, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. It's really like the major ones that, that bother to copyright. Obviously some stuff was not preserved or was never scanned, but that's just a problem that can't really um, be dealt with. So I wouldn't want to claim this is 100% representative of all, you know, 
200,000 newspapers that have ever been published in the US, but it is like over 10,000 newspapers, which is a lot better than having just a few. Why is deep learning needed to detect the layouts of documents like newspapers? The alternative would be to try to use uh, some form of rules, like you tell on the computer what the layout is. Um, uh, but that just tends to be very brittle to give very poor results because there's so many different ways that a newspaper could be laid out. Um, and on top of that, you know, it could be skewed when it was scanned. There's just all kinds of noises that enter. So if you try to like uh, sit down and hard code all the different ways the newspaper could be laid out and detect that, it's just going to lead to kind of very poor results. Um, whereas with deep learning, um, we give um, the computer uh, some labeled examples where we've, you know, taken uh, images and drawn the uh, the layouts on them, and from those labeled examples, it learns how to recognize layouts. And this ends up being a much more kind of robust result that's sort of uh, true, you know, been true across the board with deep learning, right? You know, like in other applications. Um, you know, people may try to use um, deep learning methods to detect disease for medical imaging. And again, like kind of in the world pre-deep learning where you just had kind of rules to say, okay, this looks like it could be a tumor, that, that tends not to be very accurate, like from using annotated examples actually. Um, and um, the, the computer is able to learn how to, to recognize things in a way that's much ro more robust than me trying to tell it ex ante how to do it. Right. That makes sense. So you talked about maybe different areas it could be used in. So why focus on newspapers and why are they a valuable resource? Yeah, so I think a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, they're a fascinating uh, set of documents in and of themselves. And so, um, you know, you can go and look at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know, going way back in time. Uh, but for historical um, newspapers that come from different communities, uh, different kind of towns across the U.S., um, you know, they're generally just available in these images. That's not accessible to the visually impaired. Researchers can't use that for analysis. And if we only look at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I mean, that's one particular like view of society that's probably not really representative of the media consumed by a majority of Americans um, or kind of their thoughts and their views. Um, and so from this, the point of the substance, there's just a lot of substance there. We can learn a lot about how communities were thinking about major issues, you know, policy issues, social, cultural issues, like across um, time. Um, on top of that, it's just, it, there's a huge amount of data there. Um, you know, we've extracted hundreds of millions of articles and headlines and image uh, caption pairs. Um, and that's also really useful, like from the standpoint of the methods, right? Because now we have this kind of, this, this very, very uh, large data set of, um, of information that you can use to, to train models and do other things. We essentially like use uh, content from like an off copyright um, database of newspapers. And we started with front pages and editorial pages. There's something like over half a billion pages in the entire database, which is more wow. <laughs> data than we could put that would cost, you know, probably like a million dollars just to process it alone. It's more data than we can deal with. But I mean, half of that's ads. So I think by looking at what's on the front page and um, what's on the editorial page, you see what people thought was important and you see kind of what their opinions on important issues are. We are essentially limited by having things that are off copyright. Um, 
But that is the vast majority of papers prior to 1978, which is how far forward we go because there's a change in copyright law in 1978 that makes everything automatically copywritten. And then that leads to an orphan works problem where by, you know, automatically without having to register a newspaper's copyright, that newspaper went out of business in 1985. You know, there's no way to access that sort of copyright. But before 1978, like the papers that we don't have are in the vein of like, you know, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. It's really like the major ones that, that bother to copyright. Um, and obviously some stuff was not preserved or was never scanned, but that's just a problem that can't really um, be dealt with. So I wouldn't want to claim this is 100% representative of all, you know, 200,000 newspapers that have ever been published in the US, but it is like over 10,000 newspapers, which is a lot better than having just a few. So we started off talking about um, the pilot grant award project you're working on and the two aims uh, to develop this type of technology and to make a database of newspaper content available. How will people access this database? Um, yeah, and so um, we kind of have, um, three distinct parts of the project. Um, and so the first part is um, a Python package um, that contains tools for doing layout analysis. And so, you know, people can use it to do their own analysis on their own documents. They can use the models that we've pre-trained off the shelf, but also it has tools for um, training kind of your own um, sets of models. We're also working to make um, the text um, available um, to uh, the visually impaired and kind of trying to figure out the logistics of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And then finally, we'd like to make some of the measures that we extract from this text um, more kind of generally available to researchers. And so like the full text itself, while the newspapers are off copyright, um, at least for post-1920, it gets a bit murky because they could have reproduced something that was copywritten, right? Mm -hmm. So just, you know, putting the full text on the internet you, you don't quite know the, the copyright implications of that, even though we got the, you know, the, the scans are off copyright, but Library of Congress had this entire complicated issue with it as well, um, where it's just kind of messy, but certainly like making, you know, measures to researchers available that we've calculated, like, you know, what's the sentiment on these policy issues and things like that is, you know, well within um, copyright regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, so I heard you talking about making the text accessible to the visual, visually impaired. Um, what other applications are there for this technology? I think um, to, to sort of any type of document where you want to be able to recognize the structures in it. Um, so if you were to go and just put a document um, into a commercial OCR software, um, like Google's software, Amazon software, mm -hmm. Tesseract, which is an open source software, unless it has a very simple layout, like it's essentially like a single column book, those softwares aren't capable of recognizing the document layout. So like in the case of our newspapers, you know, they'll tend to have like, you know, six, seven right. columns. Mm -hmm. It'll read it like it's a single column book. The headlines will get interspersed with the articles, with the advertisements, with the captions. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but that's true with a lot of other things. Like, I mean, even web readers oftentimes don't work that well. You know, if the web page has a complex layout, you know, um, researchers often want to digitize tables. Um, just there's a whole vast array of documents out there that exist, you know, in a non-machine readable format. Um, and we, we need to extract kind of what those structures are. 
And so that's a big part of our motivation for having made um, this Python package that's totally open source. Um, anybody can go to GitHub and they can use it as is, or they can modify it for their own purposes, right? So if there was like an, a company that's uh, developing a web reader uh, for the visually impaired, they can go and take that code and use, you know, modify it to, to, to exactly their needs, but it's open source. Anybody can use it for whatever they want. If there's a researcher working on a project and they have, um, you know, these firm level records from the 1970s that they need to digitize or administrative records from the government or medical records or whatever it may be. Um, generally, like the technology of extracting that is the same. Mm -hmm. Um, but they just may need some some labeled examples from their context. And the software is set up to make it efficient to create those and to train a model on them. Nice. So you just talked about the technology being open source, um, meaning the code is freely available and anyone can add to it and improve it. How would you like to see people using it in the future? I think really in kind of um, whatever way is... Um, is useful to them. So certainly I'd like to get all the research community involved. There's just a ton of applications there and would really like people, you know, when they, let, let's say they have um, a distinct data set, you know, they have administrative records from the government that are in hard copy and they're digitizing them, you know, contribute that model, not necessarily the data, but the model itself. Um, and then when other people wanna digitize something similar, they can use that and they won't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, I think though it also, it's also, as I said, potentially useful to people who are developing like commercial and other technologies um, uh, to essentially, um, you know, to be able to recognize um, layouts and documents. And so I think, you know, the more people you kind of get involved in that share their work, the more likely there's a model out there that's just gonna work for somebody who needs to use it off the shelf and then they won't have to create as many of their own examples to train the model, which will be very useful. Great. Um, so you're a professor of economics at Harvard. Um, how do you see this research helping your field? For a lot of questions that are like major questions in economics, things like inequality or how resource, whether resources are efficiently allocated across firms, lots of the major questions you just can't answer that with highly aggregated data. So you're not gonna answer about inequality with state level data or even county level data because you've already aggregated away that variation that you care about. Um, and so for this reason, um, you know, typically researchers studying these questions will only use very, very recent, very modern data sets. Um, but these are obviously like phenomenon that are developed um, over time. Um, and um, you can't really necessarily fully understand with a single kind of modern snapshot, you know, what leads to inequality or, um, you know, what leads to the distribution of resources that we have across firms or individuals um, in society. Um, and actually lots of times the historical data that you need to kind of understand things more deeply does exist, but it is trapped in hard copy. And if it's disaggregated, it's way too costly to digitize that manually. And so I'd really like, to be able to make um, data like that available um, to researchers. Um, I think another challenge is that people tend to, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna study contexts where there are data. And those are not necessarily like representative of the context that we'd wanna study. So there tends to be data on like 
um, the US and other very high income countries where people have had resources, you know, to, to create machine readable data in the first place or to digitize it. And there's been much less work done on places kind of like outside those contexts, which should be important to, uh, to our understanding of like economic um, phenomena. Um, and so, you know, by having a technology that can be used to digitize information to take, you know, raw document images and turn it into structured data at scale, it should make it easier for researchers to study like understudied context. And so you see that in the context of newspapers, like again, you know, like as I mentioned before, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal are interesting, but not necessarily representative. Now you can digitize, you know, these small political newspapers from a tiny town in Nebraska, or like, you know, a historical um, African-American newspaper. There's just like all kinds of publications out there that are important to understanding things, but you know, they don't have the resources of the New York Times. And so it, you know, you can't go and download it. Definitely, thank you. That is, I'm, you know, I feel like my burning question at this point is, is what made you interested in this field? I mean, I think you've talked about so many of the different ways this can be used and the implications, which I find really, really interesting when you think about, you know, you mentioned inequity or equity. And um, I'm just curious, what, what brought you here? Um, yeah, so my, my work in general focuses on economic growth, economic development, like mostly um, outs in, outside the US and low income countries. And that's, you know, really one of those contexts, as I mentioned, where um, data might exist, but it probably, you know, somebody else hasn't already studied it and digitized it. And so just like, with a lot of uh, questions that I wanted to answer in order to have the data, it requires um, being able to, to take um, documents and scan them and convert those raw images into a structured database that you can use to actually kind of understand your question. Um, and I think it's just like pretty unsatisfactory um, to, to try to get things hand entered. It really limits the scale of things. And then, you know, you end up spending a lot of time making sure everything's correct and fixing lots of mistakes and it can be kind of tedious. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of develop a technology that would make um, these sorts of contexts easier for people to study. Um, because at the end of the day, the most studied contexts are going to be the ones that are most straightforward um, to get data for, um, which really leads to overrepresentation of certain groups in our research. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.